Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In July and August of 1921, a group of young men met in Shanghai to found the Chinese Communist Party. They undoubtedly had great dreams, but even so, they might have found it hard to believe that they were initiating the largest revolutionary movement of the 20th century and that their party would just 30 years later rule China. Certainly, they would have scoffed at the idea that 100 years after their meeting, their party's far from doctrinaire Marxist reforms would have not only led to unprecedented economic growth, but to China becoming one of the two great world powers. With me to discuss the history of the Chinese Communist Party is Anthony Sage, the director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and Dae Wu Professor of International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School. He is author most recently of From Rebel to Ruler, 100 Years of the Chinese Communist Party, which is the focus of our conversation today. Anthony Sage, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. So um, if it's true um, that books are a way for an author to work out a problem, um, what is the problem of the Chinese Communist Party that you've been grappling with? And I suspect from things that you, the breadcrumbs that you lay down in the book, you've been grappling with this problem since at least your first visit to China. Yes, you know, I'd never thought of it in that way until you raised this question. Um, but I think you're right. And I think what has always uh, interested me is how does a, a Leninist organization, which we always think of being rigid, not flexible, not really adaptable, survive over 100 years? And the first time I went to China, the Cultural Revolution was beginning to wind down. Uh, Mao Zedong was just alive, barely. And then we went through this extraordinary period, his death, the arrest of the more radical group. Uh, and I think ever since then, many people outside of China have been predicting its demise at different points. It'll never get through reform. It can never unwind the state-owned enterprises. If it joins the World Trade Organization, that will change China. Well, it may have changed China, but it's uh, not removed the Chinese Communist Party from running the place. And so I think uh, that's what led me to writing the history. I wanted to go back and think, well, where did it all begin? And how did it get to where it is today? And why is it kept surviving and in many ways thriving? That's the, the thing I've taken away from the book is how immense this behemoth of a, a monster of an organization in so many ways. Um, uh, which would make Byzantines ask for their trademark back in terms of Byz Byzantine organization, um, nonetheless adapts so quickly to changing circumstances. Um, and I realized that was the sort of the dog that didn't bark in the nighttime, as Sherlock Holmes said, that I was realized mm -hmm. this is, I never thought about that. But of course, it's obvious when you realize there was no dog barking in the nighttime. <laughs> I mean, it sheds its skin and it moves on. Yeah. It is quite extraordinary. Like and, a dragon, um, I guess. Yeah, and uh, or snake, yeah. and um, you know, it always claims that it's infallible. It cannot make mistakes, and so that means that the party itself is enduring 
And where there are problems, it's because of you know, rogue individuals who try to leave the party astray or us pesky foreigners who've interfered in their domestic affairs, yet but again. never the party <laughs> itself, yet again, continually. Yeah. Hong Kong being one of the most recent examples that they yeah. claim. So it keeps itself going in that way, and it, it sheds the skin, or to mix metaphors, it regenerates itself, and it says, okay, that may not have worked, but that wasn't really the party. So in a way, this is the most counter- cultural of histories. It's an institutional history. I, I realized, oh my God, at some point I, I'm reading an institutional history. Um, <laughs> uh, but And it's uh, it shows you um, this is not a history, this is not a biography of Mao, of Zhou, of Deng. It's not a story of the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. All these things are mentioned. It's not, doesn't, it's not a story of joining the WTO. It's the story of how the party went through all these things. I mean, how the party survived Mao in a way, how the party got beyond Mao, how the party, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, the party, of course, is the defining institution. It it does make it difficult to write a book because you're going to have a lot of specialists on the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution or the WTO, and they're going to say, well, it doesn't really cover that sufficiently. But what I wanted to look at really was that long trajectory over a hundred years of the institution uh, that won victory in a revolution where nobody really thought it stood a chance and has perpetuated its role since 1949, despite massive uh, disasters such as the Great Leap Forward, the big famine in the late 60s, the political chaos of the Cultural Revolution, from the mid-60s, the student demonstrations of 1989, and yet it does, an institution has kept uh, evolving and going while retaining core Leninist features. So let's talk about its birth. Um, as, I, as I said, it's July, August of 1921 in Shanghai, uh, which is it's a little bit misleading in some ways, um, but let's talk about the context, what's going on when the party is founded and why. This is the moment where only socialism can save China, to quote the first part of that great Chinese joke, but we'll, we'll, which we'll complete, <laughs> by the end of the, we'll complete by the end of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it was a time of uh, intense debate about how do we create wealth and power for China? You know, just only a decade before, we'd had the collapse of a dynastic system, which some would claim lasted 2,000 years, some would claim lasted 5,000 years. But there was clearly um, an institutional, political, and ideological vacuum. What was it? What kind of institution? What kinds of thought system uh, would help China move forward? And what you had coming together uh, at this time was a confluence of two things. The first was a group of radical intellectuals in China, scattered across the country, engaging and trying on all kinds of different ideas, anarchism, social democracy, liberalism, Marxism, communism, and coalescing around an idea that perhaps some form of Marxism slash communism might be the way forward. But then you had a second uh, aspect coming into play, and that was the Bolshevik Revolution, which led to the birth of the Soviet Union. 
And the Soviets were looking around for where they might be able to pursue their own revolution, which they saw as global at the time. Now, many, of course, in the Comintern, the International Organization for the Communists, thought that future lay in Europe. But increasingly, as movements failed in Germany, elsewhere, some began to think maybe it lay in the East. And so Soviet agents began to operate in China. And that group of radical intellectuals uh, and Soviet agents, one of whom happened to be a Dutchman, uh, came together in Shanghai, uh, the most cosmopolitan uh, city in China, uh, one where ideas, people uh, flowed quite freely through the city. And so it was an atmosphere almost unlike anywhere else uh, in China. But it was a very fluid situation. These were people looking for solutions uh, to China's practical problems. And I think the fluidity is shown that of the 13 Chinese men, no women, uh, who were at that founding Congress, only two of them stuck with the Communist Party until 1949, one of whom, of course, was Mao Zedong. So, so the uh, last thing I was just going to say, so for them, it must it's hard for us to imagine. It must have been a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. You know, we need something new. We need something fresh. There's all those ideas swirling out there. This country is in chaos. You know, it's being dismembered by the foreign powers. What can help us? And then, of course, there was for them the shining example, for some of them, of what uh, the Soviet Communist Party had done. Did they envision the revolution beginning in the cities and being led by the cities? Yes. I mean, they were you know, orthodox Marxists in that sense. They talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, it was going to be a war- working class-led movement, uh, difficult when there wasn't much of a working class in the country. Uh, they despised what they saw as the le- yellow intellectuals. Again, somewhat ironic, given that all of them were actually intellectuals themselves. Uh, and it took a pretty harsh line uh, that they were going to be part of a global proletarian revolution that would release them from the chains of imperialism internationally and feudalism and capitalism domestically. So by 1927, um, which is, a, I realize now is a critical year in Chinese history, um, and certainly in the part, in the, it's a massively important year in the, the party's history, I guess, right up there with 1989 and 1976, and with those other sort of years that we could get into. Um, what happens? Because the Guomindang, the uh, or the GMD and the CCP, we'll, we'll refer to them for that for 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 this uh, for purposes of abbreviation. Uh, we'll refer to them as such for the rest of the conversation. Um, they're actually rather Leninist in their organization as well, uh, which is interesting. Uh, Sun Yat-sen is um, he's uh, I don't know where to put him on any ideological spectrum, but he's open to working with Leninists and the Comintern. The, the line that they're approaching is is that the CCP needs to work with the GMD. Is that is that right? And then things change. Yes. I mean, essentially what became apparent uh, to the, the communists was only 53 of them when they set out. And the idea of building a proletarian revolution uh, forged by the working class with 53 people seemed a pretty ambitious dream to be honest. So what um, the uh, Comintern first representative, who's a Dutchman, 
uh, called Snayfleet, really said was, look, you can't do this by yourself. What the first step of this revolution has to be is really a bourgeois nationalist revolution. And there is a strong nationalist movement in the South with the GMD headed by Sun Yat-sen. And so they were cajoled, they were pushed, they were pressured into what was called the United Front with the CCP working together with the GMD to carry out that first phase of a nationalist uh, revolution. And it was beneficial for the Communist Party. Initially, they, they grew their ranks quite extensively. They were able to extend uh, their influence across parts of China that would not have been possible uh, without that. One thing that helped them come to this conclusion of working with the nationalists was that in uh, February 1923, there was a major railway workers' strike in the north, which was mercilessly crushed by the warlord in the north. And that really put an end to their dreams of leading a proletarian revolution. So what happened? Well, according to Stalin, the GMD would be squeezed like a proverbial lemon and tossed aside, but actually it was the CCP that was squashed and crushed in Shanghai. And the reason for that being that I think some of those within the GMD, yes, a Leninist organization, but not sympathetic to Marxism or socialism, began to see that rise of the communists, particularly uh, their influence in a major city like Shanghai, as being a threat. Their idea of a rural revolution uh, was also seen as a threat because many senior figures within the nationalist movement uh, were related to landowning families and classes. And so when the communists welcomed the GMD into Shanghai in April 1927, rather than them uh, being accepted as brothers in arms, GMD-allied forces turned on them and slaughtered uh, the communists, which had major significance for the next phase of the revolution. Basically, it killed any idea that this was going to be an urban-led proletarian revolution. Now, for a few years afterwards, they kept talking about the need. They raised a number of insurrections in cities, each one of which was crushed. But it really meant over time and here you see Mao Zedong's own experience in history coming through, the revolution was going to be based in you know, forsaken parts of the country, mountaintops, rural areas. And that was where, uh, for the Communist Party, uh, the revolutionary uh, center was going to shift. So as early as 1927, we see the adaptability, which is the hallmark of the CCP throughout its history. We see a struggle over the adaptability. Mm. Uh, you know, the first couple of sets of leaders after 1927 carried on uh, with the forlorn idea that there could still be urban insurrections. To start with, yes, we're in the countryside, we're on the top of the mountains, but pretty soon we're going back to the cities. Mm -hmm. uh, but that you know, became increasingly untenable. And as you say, this was a first major adaptation. It came with at least uh, three sets of purges of senior leaders uh, and more of an acceptance that the short-term future at least was going to be in the countryside. One important um, consequence it did have was that the CCP never gave up the idea that it represented the advanced 
elements of the proletariat. Very convenient, because the CCP now speaks on behalf of a proletariat that doesn't exist in any meaningful sense, which gave them an extraordinary autonomy, basically uh, what we say goes. We should put a we should illuminate one thing which listeners might be confused by. You said that um, the GMD Kuomintang was Leninist, but not necessarily socialist or Marxist, um, and that's and you, um, this is important because we could even say to this day that they might not be following out doctrinaire. They certainly are not following doctrinaire Marxist economic policy. But they're, the CCP is still Leninist. So, what does Leninist mean in this in this instance? No, that's an important question. And what happened with the GMD was that uh, once this process of working together uh, was pushed, um, Soviet agents went and helped uh, build the military movement for the GMD and its political movement. And what they tried to do was shift away from the fixation on the leader principle of Sun Yat-sen to try and develop what they felt would be effective, uh, a more structured, hierarchical, organized party. And that was a party that was adopted uh, on Leninist principles and Leninist lines to start with. Um, And that structure in the party remained pretty consistent even through uh, the period when they had to move to Taiwan as they lost the civil war. And it was very closely um, allied with um, leadership principles, Chiang Kai-shek, and then uh, moving on um, uh, to clear leaders after 1949, in many ways very similar to the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, some people have claimed that the adulation of Mao in the 1940s was to be a counterweight to the adulation of Chiang Kai-shek as the head of the GMD. Mm. So, yes, in structure, but uh, it was always allied to uh, principles that would still um, promote private business, that didn't necessarily object to foreign uh, engagement in China. And certainly one of the things that was part of its undoing was it was never willing to undertake land reform because of the tying of some of the landed gentry uh, to vested interests within the GMD. So it was Leninist in name, but it was also a kind of fragmented, messy Leninism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was never able to produce the organizational discipline that the Chinese Communist Party has been able to do at times. One of the many insights of the book is the way in which there is a um, the the party facilitates a sort of um, dialogue or dialectical process, um, and one of the ways in which that happens is the influence of localities in altering the direction of the party. So here we have the very top-down centralized idea of a, of a congress of these young men coming together to to plan the future. What happens, of course, necessarily after 27 is that there are now frat groups around the country. And as they are working out what it means to be a CCP in that locality, the nature of the overall CCP changes. Is, do I have that? Is that more or less your, your point? And, and how does that work out? Yeah, I mean, 
for a period of about six years after 1927, the party, in theory, was still being directed from Shanghai. And that was still very ideologically pure and still very much listening to Soviet advisors about what should be done with the revolution. And what we saw is wherever sort of ideology dictated policy, it did not work out well. So, for example, in the early 30s, in one of these uh, geographical base areas, they tried to impose a much harsher idea of class classifications, eradication of landlords, so on and so forth. And it was extremely unpopular. But as you say, what was happening was that the, the communist armies by now were scattered along, along a, a number of different, gif, different geographic localities. And to survive, they had to make compromise. And they made compromise on policy. They didn't take such a harsh class-based stance that all rich peasants should be eradicated. Couldn't even really decline who was or wasn't a rich peasant uh, at that time. Um, they had to make um, coalitions, sometimes with roving bandit groups, simply to survive, often uh, with other nationalities. And, you know, they would interpret, for example, religious sects as basically being pseudo-Marxist. They didn't really realize they were Marxists, but what their aspiration, what their belief was to liberate themselves from this feudal environment was essentially Marxist. So what does that mean? What it means is that historically, the, the CCP was successful where it was good at micropolitics. Where it was not so good was where it let ideology intrude into those diverse geographical areas. And secondly, it meant that they had a repertoire of different policies and different experiences that they could draw on uh, in the future. So the great mythological moment of the party, perhaps the great mythical moment, is, is, is the Long March. Um, very briefly, because this is not a history of the Long March, um, <laughs> how does that come about and what's the, what are the most important results of it? Yes, I mean, it, it, you know, all nations have their defining myths. And of course, the Long March is one of them for the CCP. What had happened was that their main base area uh, was slowly being squeezed by the GMD. And by 1934, it became untenable as a place to survive. And the historic decision was made to try and break out. And of course, in classic uh, CCP fashion, it was described as a victory and a strategic retreat. The idea was that they would come back. You know, we don't really know how many, maybe 86,000 or so set out. They left behind some uh, to defend themselves uh, in, the, in the rear areas. But by the time they got to their eventual resting place a couple of years later, they'd crossed numerous mountains, numerous rivers, and they were down to maybe six to 8,000 uh, people left. Um, and many of those had not died from battles. Many had died from fatigue, disease, or just simply drifting away. Uh, as they wended their way through the Chinese countryside. 
What was most important in terms of the history of the Chinese Communist Party beyond the heroic myth was that when they took a few rest days in 1935, they met at a place called Zunyi, and there they underwent a major reassessment of party policy. And they decided that the policy which had been pursued in the military sphere had consisted of a number of leftist errors, been too ambitious, uh, you know, was not realistic, did not fit the situation. And some of that criticism was led by Mao Zedong. Now, Mao Zedong did not take control of the party at that particular point in time. But for the future history, what is important is that it is really seen as the starting point of his emergence as the dominant figure within the CCP. After this, um, when they reach their their areas of refuge, there's a, a pr fascinating process that uh, that the party undergoes that you describe as the signification of Marxism. Could you describe uh, what you mean by that? And then we should talk about the, uh, well, there, we've, you've already referred to several purges, but this is a very important sort of correction moment uh, of, of Wang Shiwei. Um, so go ahead and describe both of those things, if you would. Yes, I mean, there was clearly a group around Mao whose experiences now were formed by rural revolution, not by urban revolution. And also by this time, we're talking, you know, from about 1936 on, links to Moscow and the Comintern uh, were either extremely weak or just simply did not exist. So really sort of Soviet, Soviet uh, doctrinal leadership had melted away. And that really provided the Chinese communists with an ability to try and define for themselves what is Marxism in a Chinese context? Now, some people have said, well, it's not Marxism. Others have said, well, it's with Chinese characteristics. And this is what we hear continually down to this day, that basically Marxism is where whatever the Chinese leadership wants it to be. And so their ideas began to derive from their own revolutionary experience rather than a Soviet model. And it was related uh, to a couple of things which would have long-term significance, which I'll come back to in the moment. It still had class-based analysis, but the, that analysis of classes now was very heavily based on the analysis of classes in the Chinese countryside. And how do you promote revolution within the Chinese countryside? And Mao talked about various magic weapons which would help uh, bring about success in the revolution, class analysis, the United Front, which they would come back to again in the future, and the importance of class struggle. So it was recasting Marxism to suit the realities that surrounded them. And that process of recasting had two very important um, consequences for the future. The first was it went hand in hand with the dominance of Mao Zedong within the party itself. At the time, I don't think other leaders saw that as a threat. I think they thought that what was being put forward as Mao Zedong thought was a collective entity that they'd all bought into, they'd all contributed to. 
not the thought of one person alone, which is clearly what it became later. The second important aspect of it was it now created a dominant narrative for the party. Mm -hmm. And that was a narrative that everybody had to now adhere to and buy into. And that meant that the elements of the more cosmopolitan left-wing environment, which had existed from the 19-teens on, were crushed out of the party. Because remember that a number of the people who came uh, to this refuge in the late 30s and early 40s had come from places like Shanghai, from urban centers like Beijing. And they were still operating under a more cosmopolitan, open, critical, kind of left-wing world. And one of the key figures in that was the person you just mentioned, Wang Shiwei. And I think in many ways, and I think many people within China feel that the uh, purge and criticisms of Wang Shiwei and for his writings really mark a key turning point in the Chinese Communist Party's practice. It really marks an end to more of an open intellectual debate in a situation where the leader says, and you follow. Now, the leader might change, but that's a different issue. And um, it coincides with Mao Zedong saying that, look, arts and literature, they're not independent. There is no independent human nature. There is just the Marxist human nature. Art and literature, intellectuals, they're not there to be... Um, critical, exposing the dark sides of society. <coughs> Excuse me. They are there to proselytize the views of the party. And in that process, Wang Shui became a key figure. He had written a number of essays critical of the practices in uh, the base area. And what he began to say was, look, the practices here don't live up to what we are saying we are as a party. And he became very critical of some of those practices as a result. Other intellectuals in that uh, era, who had also been critical, slowly recanted. One of them had said, look, I can't describe ringworms as flowers. Another writer had criticized the sexism in Yenan, the male dominance. Both those people uh, made self-criticisms, mea culpa, and turned on Wang Shui. <coughs> and a number of sessions were held where Wang Shui was criticized by them, where they tried to persuade him, cajole him, to um, recant his previous views, and he refused. So there were a couple of things which were published in the Communist Party press, which I think are fascinating. One is called A Diary of Struggle, which actually goes through day by day how the Communist Party struggled to get Wang Shui to change his views. Another one was an article written by one of Mao's speechwriters, which was called About Wang Shui in which it uses vile language. You know, he's like a leech. He's crawling out of a latrine. 
He's like the blood-sucking leech that gets into your blood. And these were disseminated across all the areas where the Communist Party was operating. So clearly this was a good way to behave. And you see this recurring in the mid-1950s, in the Cultural Revolution. This very graphic, dramatic language to denounce anybody who was trying to put out a different idea. So Wang Shui was uh, arrested, left in prison. And when uh, the base area was abandoned, he was executed. We don't really know the precise circumstances, but one of the key people who was involved in that interrogation of Wang Shui said to me many, many years later, if I look back, perhaps Wang was right, but it was not politically expedient to say that at that time. No kidding. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's one reaction. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so as, and as much as the party has adapted, that's, that's one of those um, lines of continuity. It um, is a line of continuity. Uh, it, you know, it, it has gone through milder phases and harsher phases. And certainly what we're seeing under Xi Jinping is um, a very strict line of adherence to that. Uh, definitely cracking down on dissenting voices, providing a new orthodox view of Communist Party history, uh, parroting uh, views of Mao about the role of journalists, about universities should be uh, centers for training faithful Marxists. So yes, that has been a continual thread. You have a great quote. I just want to jump ahead to this. Um, a, a great line. And speaking of the of narrative, um, this is a podcast called Historically Thinking, after all. And this mm -hmm. is about the power of narrative and the power of reworking history. Uh, you write, um, Mao's narrative was compelling, linking the long arc of China's humiliation through the redemption of the struggle against the Japanese and the GMD and within the CCP, that led inevitably to Mao's own leadership. Many of those with whom I spoke about their experience in Yan'an re remarked that on hearing Mao's telling of the revolution, they could identify their own individual fates. This enabled them to understand that what had befallen them was not a random act, but part of a larger working out of history that would lead to individual redemption and national salvation. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, and it was true. We interviewed um, for a different project about 140 people who'd been in Yan'an. Hmm. And uh, often, you know, people would identify even bits of their own comments in Mao's speeches. I remember we talked with one elderly woman, uh, and Mao was, you know, would go to the caves, would talk to her. And she said, oh, that's my bit. That's my bit when she heard this speech. Now, it probably wasn't, but she felt that identification. We spoke with others uh, who, for example, had had their house burnt down by the invading Japanese. Individual family tragedy, but why? When they heard the speeches of Mao, they felt, okay, I see a process. I see a bigger picture that I can identify to in that process. And, you know, 
Mao really had three sets of narrative. There was a long arc history that he was telling, which really was related to humiliation, decline, and redemption. You know, the Opium Wars, um, the invasion of the foreigners, the loss of our sovereignty, the loss of our patrimony. You know, that's what I'm trying to reclaim for you people. And I just want to point out, this is, this is like a classic prophetic, prophetic utterance. Look at Jeremiah. This is, oh. you know, I mean, the temple has been destroyed. The people have been yes. taken to exile, but they will return. It will be rebuilt and the Messiah will come and all the nations will come. This is, this is, this is, this is it. I mean, this is the heart of and, any prophetic utterance. And it works. Yeah. But, but the important thing for Mao was then he brought that, that narrative down to two others. So it was a medium-term narrative, which was about the communist struggle with the nationalists and why ultimately the nationalists were right and why they would win. And then there was a very short-term specific narrative, which was about struggles within the Communist Party itself and why the natural progression of those struggles led to Mao as the key storyteller the one who could sum up what had gone wrong in the past, who would now control the present, rewrite the past, and let people know about what the future would behold. And so consistently, <clears throat> for many nations, you know, having the heroic narrative like the Long March was important, but there was a, an important uh, focus that the, the telling of a correct history is crucial to Communist Party legitimacy. And we see that again after the Cultural Revolution. A new history has to be written. We see it now with Xi Jinping. There has to be a correct history for everybody to abide into. And, you know, many people saw uh, this space area, Yan'an was main mm. capital of it, uh, as a spiritual home. Yeah. I was talking with one woman, and in Chinese, she said, I went back to Yan'an. And I said, no, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's the first time you went. You chew Yan'an. You went to Yan'an. And she said, no, no, no. None of us ever went to Yan'an. We returned to Yan'an because it is our spiritual home. And this, I think, becomes fascinating because you see the fault lines in the revolution. And many people find it difficult to go back and say things that happened in Yan, Yan'an, in that geographical base area, were a mistake. Because someone would say to me, what do you want me to do, dismiss all my life? Hmm. Yeah. So the personal and the political became intertwined. And then somehow, amazingly, in 1949, they find themselves, the dog has caught the car. Um, <laughs> they are ruling China. The, Mao, his prophetic utterances have been fulfilled. Um, and as you point out, this is by no means, uh, this, was, this was not a foregone conclusion. Um, it certainly wasn't. And it is baffling. Uh, <laughs> by, all, by all rights, they should not have taken power in 1949. Um, now, 
there's different stories they tell about that, of course, but I think it's really a confluence of factors. Uh, some have proposed that uh, it was the nationalist element that brought them to power. Well, yes, it was true they were anti-Japanese, but they were very clever about how they were anti-Japanese. They kept most of their crack troops away from fighting the Japanese. The brunt of that burden was taken by the GMD, uh, who lost many good troops in that. And if it was all about nationalism, why didn't the Nationalist Party, the GMD, uh, take on that mantle? Others have said it was the social revolution. Well, yes, they did carry out land reform, but land reform was only carried out in a limited number of areas and wasn't always successful. And they didn't always have uh, the poor peasantry on their side rising up to overthrow the evil landlords. In parts of China, the there were no landlords to overthrow. Um, there's a wonderful movie uh, by Trinh Khai Ge, uh, Yellow Earth, where, he, you know, a Communist Party member visits this area in the 1940s. He's not even a real party member. He's someone out collecting stories. And um, he visits these uh, very poor, barren, rural community. There are no landlords. What is the problem? It's drought, it's rain. And they finish up praying to the gods. And he becomes very disillusioned when he talks about the beauty of Yan'an, the need for class struggle. To them, it's all gibberish, irrelevant to their lives, to the way they're living them. So what did bring them together? Well, I think there's a number of factors. The first was um, the party which Mao had wrought, which really was a disciplined, organized entity in the way that the GMD was not. Secondly, it had really protected a lot of its troops. Thirdly, it received Soviet support at crucial moments. And fourth, there was really the incompetence of the nationalist forces. Um, there were a number of key battles in the northeast of uh, China, which were really crucial for um, the outcome of the civil war. And I think Chiang Kai-shek and his generals made a number of key mistakes of not withdrawing the forces, but committing them. And they lost really their most effective fighting forces uh, during that. And then success breeds success. I think mm. that felt that the communists were, uh, and people rallied behind it. They were on a wave. And the, and the GMD, by many urban folk, was seen as inept and was corrupt. And there was this myth spun around that, by contrast, the communists were loyal, they were not corruptible, and they would be effective managers. Well, having um, gotten the communists into power, I think it's time to take a short break. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. 
While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. Okay, uh, I was struck by one of the things um, that your interviewees have said, um, which was that the early 1950s, um, I, I guess as you were asking them, what was the great time to be uh, you know, in, in, in communist China? And they would look back, it wasn't the Great Leap Forward, and it wasn't the Cultural Revolution. So there is this very, very small moment in the 50s that seems to be the golden age of communist China in, in, in the minds of, of, of those who experience it. Could you briefly explain what was important about that moment to them? And then let's move through very briskly through the Great Leap Forward into the Cultural mm. Revolution. Sure. I think for those who are looking back, it was a time where some certainty, some tranquility, and some order was being returned to China. You know, remember when they took power in 1949, um, famine was common. Uh, the economy was totally dislocated. Um, fighting had been going on for decades. And through that initial period, uh, the Chinese communists were able to rebuild the economy. I think they brought for many, not all, of course, some sense of security to people's lives. The foreigners were gone. Things to be seemed to be settling on a, a steady course forward. And then in 1956, there was a crucial uh, party congress, which set out the plans for the future, but importantly made the decision that, look, Class struggle, class conflict, yes, it might persist, but that's really in the past. The principal contra uh, contradiction moving forward is around questions of economic modernization. And so I think people felt that that process of settling down and trying to move steadily forward from the early 50s was going to continue forward into the future. Mm -hmm. And of course, we now know it didn't. Yeah. Um to what extent is the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, both of them based on this, um, on Mao's um, idea of himself, it's not unreasonably, as um, the true leader of worldwide, world communism, and also really as the spiritual heir of, of Stalin? Yes, I mean, certainly um, he was not impressed uh, by Khrushchev. He was not impressed by the de-Stalinization that took place uh, in Russia. Um, and I think he saw that while he still deferred to Moscow as being the center, I think he certainly felt that uh, China was no longer a little brother, that the Chinese experience was important and that it had uh, an important role to play within the world communist movement. He was also frustrated by his visits to Moscow and I think he thought that, um, you know, we can also speed up our economy. We can overtake the UK within a short period of time for steel production, that we can move forward quicker than the Soviets to reach that communist nirvana. So I think there were three things that came together, one of which uh, I mentioned there, the rivalry with the Soviet Union. There was also a very practical question, though in the mid-50s. And that was, how do you modernize agriculture? 
Some were saying, look, let's go gradually uh, introducing machinery into the countryside um, and move forward in that way. What Mao began to say was we could wait forever for that. You know, you're, you're working on postage stamp sizes of land. What on earth is a combine harvester or a tractor going to do on that small patch of land? So his view and the view of his supporters was that, well, maybe first what needs to happen is land needs to be socialized. So we go away from what they'd introduced with land reform, this household-based farming, to cooperatives, to collectives. And then, of course, with the Great Leap Forward, we get the rush into communes. Because then you have big enough pieces of land that can use mechanized machinery. So that was a very practical element. But there was another element uh, beginning to bubble up as well. And this is really closely related to Mao's own thinking. In part in response to the Soviet Union, what he thought was happening in Yugoslavia, and increasingly as we move into the 1960s, what he thought was happening with his own revolution. Mm-hmm. That there were what he referred to as capitalist rotors in the party. You know, for people like Liu Xiaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, I think the end was important and the means to achieve that end were less important. You know, it relates to the famous saying of Deng, whether a cat is black or white, as long as it catches the mouse, it's a good catch. cat. For Mao, that wasn't true. The means were as important as the ends. And he saw the means sometimes being pursued as opening a potential for floodgates of capitalism to come back and the capitalism could be restored. And there's also, to to put, I guess, the emphasis on the party rather than on Mao, uh, Mao has, it's not an unreasonable thing. I mean, leaders of religious movements think the same thing. How how does the zeal and the fervor of the the golden days uh, of that movement, how does it continue? And how does a revolutionary movement continue to be a revolutionary movement? It's quite a problem. Um, that yeah. at how to do that, and his solution was then the Cultural Revolution. That was going to be that the the revolution would continue to to feed itself and to go on to new new levels of zeal. That it could actually increase in zeal as as time went on, rather than sort of fade away as as they so often do. Yeah, I think that's that's important, and that is true. I mean, what you had with the start of the Great Leap Forward was that you had an economy which had revived and an economy which was growing rapidly and an economy which seemed to be successful. So many of the people around Mao, not all, were pumped up. you know. And in their view, and I heard this from many people, well, look, he was always right in the past. You know, these seemed insuperable odds. And yet, in 1949, there we were. We were in power. Um... And so we believed him. When he told us this, we went along with it. And uh, there was a zeal. There was an enthusiasm. And in part, it was that zeal and enthusiasm, also at the local levels, which led to the disasters of the Great Leap Forward. Overambitious targets being set, which never could be fulfilled. An effective collapse of the economy, maybe up to 30 million people dying from famine. So you then get this period of retrenchment. And Mao makes it clear with one, again, a purge, one particular purge of someone in 1959 who criticizes the approach. 
And while Mao might accept, yeah, maybe I made some mistakes, but the whole strategy was correct. Do not criticize me on the strategy. And I think that silenced a lot of opposition when that person was removed. Yes, and then we fast forward into the 60s. So we have this ideological issue, you know, is capitalism being restored? But, you know, by then, there was a very significant younger generation who had not come through the fires of the revolution. They'd not been steeled in that process. And Mao turned to them. This was their chance Mm -hmm. to make revolution, their chance to feel that burning passion and that zeal uh, to make sure that those who are inhibiting the future progress of the revolution would be stopped and would be dragged out. And of course, it led to chaos. And by 69, the basic building blocks had to be put back in place again. Yeah, you said And the military by, had to come in. By, by 69, they were back where they had started in 49. Um, yeah, they were in, they were in many ways. Um, there was still no clear resolution about what kind of economy do we want? What are the economic priorities? You know, in 66, the Cultural Revolution had started with the tax in the cultural sphere. That wasn't resolved. The universities had been closed. The universities were now going to open. What did you want the universities to teach? Um, International affairs weren't resolved. Uh, Conflicts with the Soviet Union. Uh, Clearly, still enmity uh, with how do you deal with the United States of America? How do you deal with Soviet Russia? Questions which were there in the early 50s, still not uh, resolved. What is the correct form of the Chinese Communist Party? Um, is it Mao in holy communion with the masses? Or is it some kind of uh, Leninist structure that mm. needs to be rebuilt? Can that Leninist structure effectively govern society? So many of the questions that were around in the early 50s were really still there at the end of the 60s. Now, in, by Mao's death in 76, um, I, I, I should, before I, no, before I get to that, you, you, I just, you mentioned something that I want to pick up off the floor. Um, the role of the army. The army had to come mm. back. Um, this turns out to be a, 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 a through line that I certainly had not realized through the history of the CCP is the link with the military. We can get to it. We can talk about Deng's, I think only title was chairman of the Central Military Commission, yeah. uh, which was strange to us, but of course, absolutely essential. Um, so could you explain the role of the army in, in, in 69 and, and then, and, 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 just trace that to the to the moment, as a matter of fact. Yes, I mean, it's different for different generations. Um, you know, um, the first basic point is there's no notion of the military in China being a professional standing army. Mm-hmm. From its beginning, it has always been the party's um, army. Mm-hmm. You know, Mao's... Um, Classic phrase was political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. But of course, that gun has to be controlled by the party. So that was always the case. Now, in that generation, you have to remember, they were all military figures and political leaders. I mean, they all had military roles. So this kind of swimming and fusion between party and military uh, was very natural to them. There was no such idea of, you know, a professional military interest. And in fact, that was pushed back against in the 60s. What happened then, uh, and that goes through to the present day, you know, no no leader 
of the Communist Party can be that leader without the support of the military. It was a problem that was there in the 80s that uh, neither of Deng Xiaoping's first two chosen successes was able to gain credibility with the military, which was very problematic. So Deng stayed on as the chair of that military commission. But what happens when you get to the Cultural Revolution, I'm sorry, this gets rather complex, is the system is broken down. The party doesn't exist. The government doesn't really exist effectively. The only national institution is the army. And so the army is called in to restore order. And it's an army under um, Mao's chosen successor at the time, Lin Biao, Minister of Defense. And it reasserts order, but it creates friction. Many of those leaders that came in with Lin Biao were not from local government units. They were from centrally directed units, the Navy, the Air Force, the Rocketry Division. They had a very different perspective about politics. And the reason that it became a point of contention after 1969 when order was restored that many of those local leaders felt that they had been battered by the students and the left-wing forces and had not received sufficient support from the center. And then Mao himself began to see what could look like a military takeover, not only at the national level, but these new provincial organizations that were set up, nearly all of them were headed by military figures. And so there was a fear, perhaps, that the military might come to control the gun. And so then a number of purges and reorganizations took place in the early 70s, which again had a purge, the purge this time of Lin Biao, Mao's chosen successor, the head of the military, to get the military back into the barracks and restore the party as the dominant organization. By the time Mao uh, died in 1976, there is at least some clarity on the on some of those things that were still lying about, um, like pickup sticks in 1969. <laughs> um, there's um, clarity of the relationship with the United States, which also means there's more clarity of the strategic relationship with the Soviet Union and, and how that's going to be developed over the next uh, the, the next 20 years. Um, but the economic uh, pickup sticks are still lying scattered around. Um, does it would seem to me that ultimately um, the Communist Party abhors a power vacuum, which yeah. is strange because it's supposed to be there's a consensual hierarchical blah 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 blah, but it really needs, and you can see this from '76 to the to, to 2013, uh, these moments where um, things get very confused when there's not one guy in charge. Mm. Why is that? Well, you know, one senior uh, party member once said to me, remember, Tony, the Communist Party can't abide a space. If it sees a space, it has to fill it. He said, it's our DNA. You know, I know it might be wrong, but I can't help it. There's a space, let's fill it, you know? So that is the DNA of the party. Um, it doesn't have to be the way that it leads inevitably to a one-person diktat or one-person rule. 
And we have had periods uh, just prior to Xi Jinping where Mm -hmm. all of us thought that progressively China was moving to a more collective structure for leadership. The idea of that one-party dominance that we'd seen previously was perhaps part of the past, but we've been proved wrong. And I think there is inevitably in that structure of the way that they construct democratic centralism with this hierarchical pyramid that it tends to lead to a one-person uh, dominance of the system. And that person, as we see with Deng Xiaoping, as you said, you know, his last title, I think, was the head of the Chinese Bridge Association. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, there's not a lot of countries where the head of the Bridge Association is making crucial decisions. Not even in New no. Jersey, which is, <laughs> which is surprising. <laughs> and, uh, and so you needed that person. Um, in a way to, because you don't have an open political system. So how do you resolve conflicts? How to resolve when there's differences of opinion? One individual, not just at the center, but all the way through the system has to have that authority to step in and say, look, it's A, it's not B. And that's the way we're going. So, you know, the authoritarianism doesn't only operate at the center. It cascades down the system. And that has positive and negative effects. I've visited some local areas who've had a wonderful party secretary who's really done good things for the area, really cares about the people there. And she or he, usually he, has the authority to implement those things. I've been to other areas where it's a mini dictatorship. And again, it's because that party secretary is more concerned about themselves and their family and not the people, and they have the authority to do whatever they think is best. In the, in the show notes, I think there's a relevant passage in Locke's Second Treatise on Government explaining why <laughs> that is. Uh, a tyrant can be a good tyrant. It can be a bad tyrant. Just it's the, the, the point is it's tyrant. Um, it's a tyrant, that's, yeah. That's, a na- that's yeah. the nature of tyranny. It's, it's, it is arbitrary right. um, in its effects. Well, and it's the thing that's – no, you're right. And it's the thing that's always disturbed me um, – When people have said, look, they're a competent leadership, they're making the right decisions. Well, we can argue on certain things they have, but it is that point that you're making that authoritarianism at the center translates into authoritarianism lower down the system. That can be good, but if you're standing in the way, it'll crush you. Mm -hmm. And and, and the tyrants change. Yeah. Uh, And the good tyrant is... So, you know, succeeded by a bad tyrant, and that's just the way it is. Um, that's and- right. And, you know, again, I think what you sometimes remind people about is, you know, the party is praising itself for its great choices, its great progress. Uh, but you can reply saying, yeah, but, you know, this is the same show that brought you the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution in 1989. Which is why you have to then change history. Which is why, yeah, rewriting history becomes important. And mm-hmm. we're seeing a big campaign to do that at the present moment under Xi Jinping. Um, well, Dung, uh, we need to speed this up a little bit. We've. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. But it's okay. No, it's not, it's not your fault. It's my fault. Um, I, I'm, I'm the one that's controlling the accelerator, but I'm, I'm not really put, using it much. Um, Dung, what's really extraordinary is he has this vision of how he wants the economy of China to change. Uh, and 
I realized reading your book, he was given so many opportunities, speaking of accelerators, take his foot off the gas. Yeah. Um, uh, but as you say, one of the ways that he resembled Mao, Mao was his teacher, was his faster is better. Yeah. Um, and he could have stopped after Tiananmen. He, mm-hmm. uh, it, in my mind now, I see this, His we'll get to his Southern tour of 92, which seems to me probably in Chinese history might eventually be seen as a bigger deal than Tiananmen uh, in 89. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how things shake out, but it's a it's an important moment which I don't think Westerners know enough about. Um, so why didn't he take his foot off the gas? What was going on there? Do we do we have any idea? Well, Deng didn't know a lot about economics. I mean, this was a continual criticism from one of the other seniors, uh, Chen Yun, who well, was always arguing. Whose who's economics did he didn't know a lot about Marx's economics? I had a, a friend who said, "Yeah, he said the only time I did well in in, in Soviet University was when we studied capitalism." Um, Marx, <laughs> I was always very bad at Marx's economics. Uh, cap, you know, John Locke made sense, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure he knew too much about the capitalist economics, except that it, you know, market forces seem to be good. Um, you're right. I mean, one thing he shared with Mao was that if it was faster, it must be better. And others around him were continually trying to hold him back from that, not because they didn't want economic reform, but they saw that it could be destabilizing, as it was in 88 Mm -hmm. into 89. And again, at a couple of points in the 90s, where inflation was really, uh, you know, taking off and becoming problematic. Um, So, um, so I think that was his proclivity. The two points you mentioned are important. After Tiananmen, and then I think more importantly for Deng, what happened in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. really influenced him. And I think while more conservative figures were using the fallout from 1989 to criticize things like the special economic zones, which was bringing in foreign investment, foreign business practices, uh, the role of private industry um, and a number of other factors, they were pushing back on that and being very critical. And I think Dung's view was if we go down that path, we will follow up in the same state as the Soviet Union. The only way to keep going is to get this economy moving so that people will become satisfied and they become accepting of the Chinese Communist Party again. And that is where that Southern tour in 1992 becomes crucial because he was blocked in Beijing and he decided to go on a family visit. Didn't tell the people in Beijing. He took the family off for a little jaunt around the South. Mao had done it before. He went South, uh, you know, to promote ideas that Beijing were blocking. Hmm. And Deng did the same. So he went South. He went to those some of those southern provinces, and talk to local government officials. You know, don't be like an old woman with bound feet. You know, you need to move forward quickly. And he generated support to get the economic reforms moving again to the point where those in Beijing, including the then General Secretary Jiang Zemin, had to make a self-criticism and come in line uh, with a movement back to many of the reforms which had been uh, germinating through the 19. 19- Eighties, yet the um, as you describe it, at first his trip wasn't even reported. 
that Beijing, the, the 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 press outlets were blocked from reporting on it, or they cho- they they knew better than to report on it. So how did this? How did it work then? Was it just his visiting these guys in in the Shenzhen? I mean, and that that was all it took to get things keep things moving, or? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, it has to be more complex than that. They didn't even know he'd left Beijing to start with. <laughs> but, you know, then these provincial reports started coming up. Okay. Deng Xiaoping has said this. Deng Xiaoping has said that. Deng Xiaoping is et cetera, et cetera. People reporting back. And I think his supporters in Beijing started using that to open the cracks to get some of these messages out. Now, what was reported publicly was uh, far less critical uh, and extreme than what was being said uh, in private and coming back in these reports. But, you know, if you have a system with a supreme leader, you listen to what the supreme leader says. And I think if I was an editor of the People's Daily, who am I going to go with? Am I going to go with this young Jiang Zemin or am I going to go with Deng Xiaoping? Wait a minute. I know what my editorial tomorrow is going to be about. Yeah, he and he was still very much the supreme leader. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Not to everybody's taste, but certainly that was the case. Yeah, um, Jiang Zemin uh, is, uh, in some ways, I mean, I, he's almost more interesting to the purposes of your book, it seems to me, um, than Mao or Deng, um, because he shows the ways in which um, adaptation occurs and succeeds in the, mm. in the Chinese Communist Party. I had never taken him very seriously. Didn't know, you know, he, he just was not much of a personality after that short little spark plug of a man who smoked panda cigarettes and played bridge and spoke French. You know, that was a, <laughs> that was a personality. Uh, Zhang Zemin just seemed another, an apparatchik. Um, but he turns out to be re- apparatchiks are for institutional history. Apparatchiks are really important. <laughs> well, I remember someone uh, working in the Soviet embassy who had been, who knew what a Soviet apparatchik was. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, you guys keep paying Jiang Zemin as this fool, <laughs> you know, reciting American poetry, singing songs, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I tell you, he is a supreme apparatchik. He is working this system and he is going to thrive. And that person turned out to be correct. Uh, he knew how to work the system. He kept his head down. I think you can tell the day Dung's health was in rapid decline because that was about the day Jiang Zemin started speaking out for himself hmm. rather than you know being docile, being quiet. Um, and then you begin to see that shift. And I think... Um, yeah, he's crucial in the sense that he moved the party on by recognizing that society had changed. And again, he had the much ridiculed three represents. You know, party represented the advanced forces, the advanced elements, culture, and so on and so forth. But it was a way of saying that our society has changed and we have a new middle class, we have entrepreneurs out there. And if we don't accept them, and define them into what the party is and allow them to join the party, we may be um, on a slide downhill that we might not be able to stop. So he recognized that change in society. He got it written into the party statutes. 
and it brought uh, a different set of people into uh, the party system. Let's tie, begin to tie things up with, uh, as I said to you in the notes, it um, you could write an entirely different book about the Communist Party just by focusing on, say, it's like the the history of the world in seven glasses, or you know, a hundred objects, you know, about the world history, uh, world history, a uh, hundred objects. You could do the Chinese Communist Party in ten purges, mm-hmm. um, and we've mentioned a couple of them. Uh, we've uh, overlooked some of the interesting ones because <laughs> there's some even better ones. But let's talk about Bo Zhilai, uh, because this one I remember. <laughs> this one was in the news not all that long ago, uh, but I didn't understand its importance and, uh, at all. And also, I didn't have this knowledge of all these long history of purges that have come before it to tie it into this and realize that the way that you take the pulse and check the breathing of the Chinese Communist Party to see who's been purged lately. Um, <laughs> you can, but you can, you can see the directions that it's going to take or has been taking. Um, so could you describe that and then tie it into what we've already talked about? Yes. Um, I mean, Bo Xilai and Xi Jinping represent two different families in the Chinese uh, party's history. Both of them have fathers who are very eminent and powerful figures in CCP history. And they talk about red blood. Mm-hmm. You know, I think both of them felt that they had a natural right to inherit authority within the Chinese Communist Party. And Bo Xilai, I think, was a threat to many in the party because he was more flamboyant, he was more extravagant, and he seemed to be building in Chongqing a model um, which some didn't want to go back to. It was praising, um, you know, the culture of the Chinese Communist Party, people singing red songs. It was cracking down on corruption, which was extremely popular. Some people claimed that, you know, it it wasn't done legally. It was abrogating people's rights. But it was becoming a very populist figure. And I think some opponents thought that he would be not trustworthy with the Communist Party in his hands, because might it lead to chaos again, this kind of more freewheeling approach. And so they turn to um, consolidating Xi Jinping, who I think they thought was a more trustworthy figure, that he was more acceptable as the lowest common denominator for different parts of the party, that because he was a child of one of the revolutionary families. He wouldn't do anything to threaten the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And he would take them on a good, steady course forward. Now, I don't think any of them uh, would have predicted what they got. Uh, Because when he was vice president before that, he appeared perfectly anodyne. You know, he knew the way to play the game. He didn't, you know, didn't step out of line. He managed the Olympics well. He managed the celebrations for the 60th anniversary of the founding of the PRC. So he came over as a competent manager. He'd run two provinces well. He'd had a brief time in Shanghai. And so I think people trusted him <coughs> to be um, you know, a good, solid uh, leader. And uh, so Bohr was purged, arrested. You know, and what became the weapon of choice, of course, was corruption. Mm-hmm. Whereas previous purges, it was all about line struggle, you know, pursuing the wrong political line, 
and so forth. I mean, I think people found that as ridiculous as many find Marxism in the present day and age. So most of those purges now, people are charged with corruption, so that, uh, which is more tangible, more visible, and more understandable. More understandable, also popular. Um, and very popular. popular. Yeah. So there's a way in which um, this autocracy has to play now to popular desires in a way that certainly, um, well, okay, Mao probably did too as, a, as well, but in, in a very different way than it would have been than it was done in 65. Yes, I mean, uh, the top leadership is clearly aware of public opinion and it monitors public opinion very closely. And of course, traditionally, it's always been able to control information flows through its vertical silos, but now it has to confront new social media, which can move very quickly, which can move horizontally. But of course, at the same time, it provides important feedback for the leadership. What are people concerned with? What are they thinking about? Um, and it does require um, uh, the leadership to think more seriously about uh, the concerns of this new uh, rising middle class in China. And we've seen that particularly around questions related to the environment. Um, environmental degradation has been part and parcel of the approach that the Chinese Communist Party has taken towards uh, its reform program. And that has led to heavily polluted air, water, food safety issues, uh, which has been a major concern for many in rural China and also this new middle class. Um, and now they're responding to that. They're trying to react to that. Uh, so they have used this in a way to give them better feedback loops uh, to try and keep uh, control. Mm -hmm. And they um, are now, uh, they've just successfully responded to yet another crisis, which is the pandemic. Yeah. Um, for which they've, I mean, they've, there's been lots of, of preparatory work. Um, at least there have been two other sort of uh, epidemics just in this century alone um, mm. that they've had to confront. They'll, and they'll probably have to confront another. Um, mm. So yeah. this seems to be part now they have, um, they, they seem to adopt to this like way Florida governors have adapted to hurricanes. This is, yeah. this is just, this is just going to happen and this is how we are going to deal with it. So this is not a threat to the regime. It's not to the, threat of the tranquility of the regime or of the party. Um, is there yeah, anything, but, is there anything, but, I mean, go ahead, go on. No, I was say, but a hurricane in Florida, you can't really cover up and lie about to start with. That's for sure. And if you look at the playbook of what happened back in 2002, 2003 with SARS, and then again now, it pretty much followed the same script. Mm -hmm. Local officials didn't report. They tried to cover up. People lied. And it produced a phenomenal backlash amongst the population. You know, those first couple of months, uh, citizens online were extremely critical of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party about what was taking place. Uh, Xi Jinping disappeared for a brief period of time. We don't know why. The premier was the person who was meant to deal with it, and then suddenly came bouncing back once things came under control. And as with SARS, the propaganda mechanism went into place you know, it started talking about uh, angels in white, the nurses. But now we see that, you know, the doctors and nurses were heroic because they were Communist Party members. And that really turned things around to where, as you say, um, citizens have been very supportive of what the uh, Communist Party has done in combating uh, COVID-19. And that, of course, has also been buttressed by 
showing what has happened in other countries in the much more negative and ineffective responses elsewhere, which has made many people feel uh, that, yes, our party is competent. It has looked after our interests. And I think, you know, anecdotally in other ways, support is pretty strong mm-hmm. for the party. Um, most, it's impossible to predict the future um, problems that the, I, I was looking through, thinking about all the things that the parties had to adapt to. And just about all of them were impossible to predict even <laughs> five years a, ahead of it, right? especially the self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. Um, where where should we where where would you like people to, uh, to end with this as they as they think about the uh, the Chinese Communist Party and its its immense longevity now um, as a, as any political party that reaches a hundred is um, is doing really well it's not just a political party it's a it's a culture it's an ethos it's a way of life um, mm-hmm. and it's uh, one of the most important actually it's probably the the most important institution in the world right now um, and in an era of weakening institutions. It's remarkably strong. Um, Yeah, I think I would say three things related to that. The first relates to a lot of what we've talked about, and that is it has survived remarkably. It's been adaptable. It's been flexible. So one of the scenarios we should paint moving into the future is it's still going to be there. Mm -hmm. And China is now powerful. It has tools and weapons that uh, Mao Zedong even didn't have. And so we have to factor into the way we think about that future that it could be there for a long time. Might not be, that we don't know, but it's certainly something we should think about. Then I think we should think about two issues and how the Chinese Communist Party is able to respond to them. The first is economic. I think for many people, their satisfaction with the Chinese Communist Party and the legitimacy of the Communist Party now doesn't rely on its ability to decipher the entrails of Marxism-Leninism, but to be able to deliver social and economic goods, what people call performance legitimacy. So there, when we look at the economic realm, can it keep providing an economy that produces sufficient largesse to make people happy? That raises the question of policy and strategy. Can China keep its economy moving effectively by relying extensively on the state-owned sector, which we know has declining total factor of productivity, rate of return is low in it, and we have a thriving private sector, um, which doesn't get the access to credit and cash that it's need, that is continually disfavored, yet the party prefers the state domestically and in its global policies. Uh, And yet, 80-90% of new jobs are created in the non-stake sector. It's now the major player within the economy. So how does the party resolve that uh, in the economic uh, sphere, I think, becomes a key challenge. And what we've seen at the moment is with the high-tech sector, it's actually trying to bring it under closer state control. You know, it's been classic. When the state doesn't have the capacity, it outsources. Once it becomes significant or grows, it reels it back in and tries to bring it back under party influence. Does that stifle the innovation and creativity that China needs to meet its objectives moving forward? And the last thing which I'll I'll finish with is on the political realm. Yes, it has been a remarkable institution. It has survived extraordinarily well. But 
there are challenges there. And I think one is this recentralization of control which has been taking place. One of the things we've talked about is local initiative, local adaptability, local flexibility. And in many ways, that has provided the innovation and spark for China. So by recentralizing a lot of control and power, do you kill that uh, flexibility, that innovation? Do officials, fearing they might be accused for corruption, say, well, better to put my feet up and twiddle my thumbs and actually do something? That may be a sort of a challenge. Uh, it was messy. You know, corruption was growing uh, before she took over. I mean, local governments seem to be pursuing their own interests rather than those of Beijing, but it was effective. And then, then there's a second issue, which is related to succession. And this brings us back to purges and so on and so forth. Chinese Communist Party has very rarely managed a successful leadership transition in its history. And that becomes a problem. Xi Jinping has indicated that he wants to be around until 2035. Well, I think that makes things unstable because it pushes the whole question of succession out into a murky uh, future where we don't know what is really happening. What if he dies tomorrow? Are the systems in place that can deal with that or are there not? And if I was someone sitting towards the top of the tree at the moment, I wouldn't be that happy. I might have been thinking in five years, 10 years, I'd be top of the tree. Mm -hmm. But now I'm being told, no, not before 2035. That might produce frustrations. So I do think, again, this question of succession, and but it's related to a broader question, which kind of came up earlier in different ways. And that is, can the Communist Party devise the institutions and feedback loops that will satisfy over the long term a growing middle class uh, population in urban China which will have their own hopes and aspirations. If it can do that, it will be the first, I think, single party regime to be able to reduce a system that can do that. And I think whether it can or cannot will be the defining question over the next 10 to 15 years. My guest today has been Anthony Sage. He is the author of From Rebel to Ruler, 100 Years of the Chinese Communist Party. Tony, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. And thank you very much for the invitation. Mm -hmm.